Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today, we continue our Batman throwback series as we talk about Batman Forever, and I'm happy to be joined by our Batman correspondent. He sees without seeing. To him, darkness is as clear as daylight. It's Nick Menta. Nick, thanks for being back. Surf's up, big kahuna! (laughs) Josh, babe, you are fired. Or should I say terminated? <laughs> I appreciate you bringing the energy, Nick, because I know both of us have had a, a very long week, but I am excited to talk about this movie. Nick and I uh, already talked about uh, both Batman 1989 and Batman Returns, which people could have heard earlier this month. And uh, we are going to finish out the Batman movies that came out in the 90s in advance of The Batman, which people will you know be able to see within a couple of weeks of listening to this. But uh, now we are talking about Batman Forever, which is the first of the two Batman movies directed by Joel Schumacher. It also involved the recasting of Batman, uh, who had previously been played by Michael Keaton. He was now played by Val Kilmer and had just a a, a pretty wild cast on top of that, as it had Tommy Lee Jones uh, playing Two-Face and uh, Jim Carrey playing Edward Nygma, the Riddler, and uh, Chris O'Donnell playing Robin and... Nicole Kidman uh, playing Dr. Chase Meridian, who I think, as Robert Ebert put it, sounds like a bank. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, um, But yeah, so, you know, we're dropped off into this world and, you know, Batman ends up just kind of fighting two villains that are just like, I mean, pretty much going at it, though. uh, For most of this, though, we see the very we see kind of Edward Nygma's origin story as well. And it's just a very noticeable departure from uh, the last movie Nick and I talked about, which was uh, Tim Burton's Batman Returns, which was all kinds of a uh, weird and dark and this was you know uh, a pretty noticeable departure and i think we'll talk a little bit with nick about the the reasons behind that and the the tone that this movie was going for but i guess uh nick i, I think the way I, just my, my initial thoughts when i were watching this was that i was very kind of i mean i guess i was expecting something like this based on the way people talk about joel schumacher and based on the way people talk about these movies but i'm wondering as someone who and I think I might have even asked you a question about this on the uh, Batman 89 pod, when uh, which, which we recorded a while ago at this point. But like, you know, this is just such so distinctly its own thing. Whereas like, you know, even like 89 and Returns were like, you know, very distinctly them, their things from like their own things from the Nolan movies, which, you know, in like you're a fan of those movies, you're a fan of these movies to varying degrees. But as we've established, you're very fascinated by them. So I'm wondering, like, what about this Joel Schumacher era really like? <laughs> tickles you even if it doesn't like strike you as like great cinema well some of this stuff is the product of when you came up or like what age you you actually came to this Mm -hmm. so this is 1995 so this is five or six year old me who's obsessed with jim carrey and he's generally a young batman fan Mm. so there's the reasons why i would gravitate to this as a child but then re-watching this as a 32 year old (laughs) there's a lot here 
that's just exceptionally fascinating about this film. The reason I love it as an adult, and this goes for Batman and Robin as well, which is one of the more, um, you know, hand films of, of modern pop culture, mm. is that unlike something like what Matt Reeves is going to offer us in a couple of weeks, or unlike the great pains that Christopher Nolan went to to explain the practical reason or the practical explanation behind everything, there is no practical explanation <laughs> for anything in this film. Like not to borrow too much from, from Kevin Smith's uh, concerns about all the contractors who died on a Death Star, but who the hell built all this shit, right? The Bat logo is on everything. Everything Edward Nigma owns is adorned with 47 question marks. Did he go out and hire somebody to be like, I'm an evil villain, here's what the, like, here's what the lair needs to look like. And like, as impossible as it is, there is something like, really fun and just genuinely wonderful about not needing to explain this kind of shit and just letting it stand on its own in this bombastic grandiose way. And that's why for me, this is still so much fun. Okay. So I guess in a vacuum, I respect the uh, willingness of a filmmaker to just like kind of do away with all that kind of minutia though. Maybe this is my fault for my expectations, but like that was kind of like one of my big things about this movie. And I was like, Wait, like, why are we here? The idea behind what Jim Carrey's Riddler is doing in this movie is that he has a device that he can just, you know, put on top of a TV and it'll just like, you know, stare right to the soul of people and suck up all their intelligence and transport it directly into their brain. And on one hand, I respect the fact that we don't actually need, we don't have the science all that spelled out to us because that would be pretty annoying and boring probably. But I think my thing was that I wanted to have, uh, I, I, I mean, and I'm curious how, you know, again, I understand why six-year-old you would be very obsessed with Jim Carrey and maybe six-year-old me would have been. And I think maybe that's a, a, the two-year age gap for us is maybe different there because I wasn't watching these movies at that point. And I probably wasn't taking in like, you know, the, the mask in the same way at that point because I was four or whatever. But like, you know, and I actually really enjoyed Jim Carrey's turn as a villain a couple of years ago in that Sonic the Hedgehog movie, which everyone just assumed was going to be trash and was actually solid because it had such a like a, a, a really like, a, a really horrendous like production uh, story. But here I was like, man, I, okay, this is kind of a galaxy brain villain plan, but fine. Like I can, I can kind of get behind that. But the idea was it was supposed to be making him very smart. And that's the idea. He's like sucking up all these people's intelligence, but like Jim Carrey didn't show up to like play a, like play like a, a, an intelligent dude. He just came there to like do crazy bonkers, Jim Carrey stuff. And I was just like, I, I, I was like, okay, like I get it. You're doing your wackadoo thing. Maybe it'll get a chuckle here or a chuckle there if you they, they feed you the right line. But it really seemed to be like a kind of a disconnect from what this guy's actual plan was. And then conversely, you know, again, fairness, it, it, the last movie's plot was was a power plant genocide. Okay, like that's that's the two the two villain plots of Batman Begins was I'm going to run a reverse power plant, and this other guy wants to kill the first. You mean, you mean returns? So these, yes. Well, I mean, yeah, but at least in that, like, we, we kind of understood well plotted movies. But like, we, we kind of under, we will, that's the thing, though. Like, we, I, I kind of understood that, like, all right, like, um, uh, shoot, what's, what's, um, what's Walken's character, Max, um, Max Shrek. Max Shrek, yeah. So, like, he's just, like, you know, he's just a, a greedy rich guy. It's like, all right, greedy rich guys are going to do greedy rich guy things. And we, we kind of saw where Penguin came from and kind of what informed all that. Here, it's like, okay, the guy that actually has, like, some kind of 
business plan, I guess. I don't know what Riddler is doing. Like, I don't really understand the end to what it is. I don't actually see him acting like an intelligent person, despite the fact he's stealing intelligence. And then with respect to Two-Face, who's like, you know, more just like a guy that's like uh, very strange in the same, I mean, not the same, necessarily the same vein as Penguin, but uh, a little more analogous to like that story there. Like, we, we don't get the Two-Face story. And, you know, that's, and that's because like, I, and I was probably like a little let down by that because, you know, I think the Dark Knight actually like does a pretty good job of like showing that turn that Two-Face has to make. So I'm just like inherently comparing it to that. Though again, that's probably my fault for like ex- like holding Joel Schumacher to any kind of standard for like that is informed by what I saw in a Christopher Nolan movie. So again, I I, I know what I kind of knew what I was getting into with these movies, but at the same time, I was like trying to hold on to stuff that just wasn't there. Sure. And like Tommy Lee Jones is the most overqualified actor for like the worst part for him. And mm. he's pretty upfront about that in all of the interviews he's ever done. Well, so what film. was the what was the pitch they got him to they gave him to like even do it? Did they ever get into that? Like why he like went yes. for it in the first place? Yes. So uh, a producer he had worked with, I believe, on the siege and on the fugitive, sent him the script. Mm-hmm. And his first reaction to the script was, "I don't get why you want me to do this." Okay, <laughs> not a ringing endorsement right off the start. And and he is pretty open about the fact that he's like, "My son was really excited about it. He knows what it mm-hmm. was, so I opted to do it." So you have. <laughs> the lack of initial investment from what is a very talented actor for a role that does not suit him in the least for a film that does not suit his sensibilities in the least. And you pair him opposite Jim Carrey and the two of them end up not getting along whatsoever, which is actually part of a larger story uh, that we'll get into of nobody on this film actually liking each other. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Have, have you ever seen JFK? Yes, I have. So that, that's like a very interesting Tommy Lee Jones performance too. When you like com- take those two and compare it against these two and like that and this, and which came out like two years before this. So, I mean, I get maybe why someone like would have like thought about him to like, it wouldn't, it, it's not like, it's not the biggest leap to think you watch him in JFK and be like, Oh, he could do two face, but it's there. It's, it, it, not it's his version of it. Well, uh, not, not, the, not with this sensibility, not with this kind of general goofiness. Like that is not the kind of vibe that that actor goes through. That's, those aren't the parts he gravitates towards. And that's not like the type of acting he does. Not opposite Jim Carrey where he's cackling. Well, not like, opposite Jim Carrey. but Tommy like, Lee Jones, you don't think of cackling. Well, he's still, no, but he's being more out there and like flamboyant in a way in JFK where it's like, I get why they wanted him to be like a wackadoo here, but I also get why like he thought he would, I also though get why like he maybe thought he can do something else with that part, but then he's like forced into these scenes with Jim Carrey and he's probably like, what the hell is going on here? And you that's know. that's actually correct. And yeah. listen, we'll let's just dive into this now while we're here. We'll, okay. we'll get we'll get blood feud from Batman Forever One right out of the way. Mm. So Carrie tells a story, and these these are direct quotes from Jim Carrey. I'm reading now. Mm. Quote: I was the star, and that was the problem. Tommy is a phenomenal actor, though, and I still love him. And he goes on to tell the story about how he ran into him at dinner one night while they were filming. He goes, the maitre d' said, oh, I heard you're working with Tommy Lee Jones. He's right over in the corner having dinner. So I go over and say, hey, Tommy, how are you doing? And the blood just drained from his face. He got up shaking and he must have been like in some sort of mid kill me fantasy or something like that. He goes to hug me and he says, I hate you. I really don't like you. And I asked him, what's the problem? And he pulled up a chair. I pulled up a chair, which probably wasn't smart. And Tommy says, I quote, cannot sanction your buffoonery. The end well, of the quote goes, he might not have been comfortable doing that work too. That's not really his style of stuff. I cannot sanction your buffoonery is really like, 
the gold quote for both of these films under Joel Schumacher. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I wonder if like he, I wonder if he'd watched a Jim Carrey film before making that movie. Like, do you think do you think Tommy Lee Jones ever saw Ace Ventura Pet Detective? Did he see did he see a grown man talking out of his ass? I'm not sure. Or if he did, <laughs> he just simply wasn't happy about it. So yeah. Oh god. Well, I mean, that's that's hilarious. And I, I did not know that before, like just before we started like recording, and you told me about that. And I mean, I, it, it's not surprising at all, but it's actually like kind of hilarious because like I also would have been like, oh, interesting. Um, maybe opposites attract, maybe Jim Carrey, but maybe Tommy Lee Jones has some kind of like, you know, uh side of his personality that could like, you know, gel with someone like a Jim Carrey. But nope, it's like Tommy Lee Jones is exactly who you think Tommy Lee Jones is, which is pretty funny. I mean, but like, let me ask you, uh, knowing all that, like, do you, does it give you a greater level of appreciation for those scenes? Do you still enjoy those scenes uh, because you're able to kind of let go of any kind of like explanation for why these guys are the way they are, which was a struggle for me? Are you still able to just kind of like indulge in that buffoonery yourself as a viewer of these movies? Or is or more specifically, is the 32 year old version of you able to do that? I actually enjoyed the chemistry they have on screen, mm-hmm. which is it's it's funny. Yeah, I actually they don't so think it's bad. They yeah. each other, but like. Yeah. I particularly enjoy where uh, I believe it's in the middle of the film where they're just going around robbing places and they go up and they punch the security guard. And it's the, mm. you know, Hey, two face, show me how to punch a guy. Like they actually have a chemistry on screen that they clearly did not have off screen, but like, I enjoy their byplay despite the fact that like, this is a really bad version of two face. Like this is just a poorly fleshed out, poorly imagined, poorly written version of the character. None of it works. But just in terms of like these two characters acting off each other, that does. Well, that's the thing. They always they always made like an attempt to like show what happened with Nigma and why he like kind of went the way he did. And they don't really do that with Two Face. And my thing, and I, and I actually agree with you, despite the criticisms I previously stated. I there were moments where I was like, oh, like they play off each other kind of well. It's a shame mm-hmm. I don't have a better grasp of who these guys are because in in my thought and in, in my overarching thought was because I mean we haven't really talked about. Uh, Kilmer yet but like irrespective of his performance and again this is again me like already being informed by all the other Batman content I have watched I was like man I I, I I do not need the Batman trauma story again I do not need to see his parents getting killed all and I mean we don't need to hash out that out people complain about that stuff all the time but the fact is me as someone that just kind of has been there done that I'm like I don't really need to see this. I kind of know what happened with Batman beforehand. I would rather like understand like what happened with this version of Two-Face or something like that. And if you had spent like the, the 15 to 20 minutes, you saw like Batman like reliving trauma and having the visions of that bat in that cave or whatever. And like actually like, you know, spent that time with like the uh, earlier version of Two-Face or uh, other, other kind of scenes where you just kind of understood like his hate of Batman more then like, I think I would have just like been a little more into the story and more invested in these characters. Now, did you watch either like an extended edition of this or the deleted scenes? Because you just alluded to uh, him hallucinating the bat in the cave. Are you talking about like the deleted scene where he actually goes up to the bat mascot and puts his arms out? Ooh, shoot. I or are you not? A, okay. okay. I don't. I don't know. I, I watched whatever is on was was on whatever I rented on Amazon Prime. I don't know. Okay, so, so it wouldn't have been in there. But so okay. there's. There's some deleted scenes that wind up They're on YouTube and they're on the Blu-ray. And so like you're talking about like being not being so much so interested in Batman's trauma. There's a version of this film that got cut and just isn't finished. But like you can clearly see the deleted scenes um, where it was significantly like more of a psychological uh, exploration of Bruce Wayne and why he has guilt about being Batman. And like so there's there's a version of the plot that makes a lot more sense as it relates to the main character. Hmm. That being said, considering everything else in this movie that doesn't make sense, that's really loud, that's really bombastic, 
considering everything that Carrie's doing. That other version of the film with those scenes put back in that are like the quieter, sort of like darker psychological scenes for Val Kilmer would have been completely out of place in the rest of this movie. So it's almost well, like on the one hand, it would have like made a richer portrait and at least made a longer movie, but like it would have felt out of step with everything else that they well, did. What's interesting to say that, because one of the things I remember saying that I really liked about 89 was that like, I thought it like kind of balanced all that stuff very well. I thought it balanced the goofy stuff. It had some uh, serious moments and like, it just, it never felt like I was getting tonal whiplash. It all felt like of a piece and all kind of held together for me. So uh, it's interesting that like, you know, you saying that they'd added in these darker scenes, I guess, because the Schumacher of it is like fairly wacky. Maybe it's just like, it, it's a little bit too like uh, they're, they're a little bit too polar opposites to have like had yeah. all those different scenes in the same movie, I guess is what you're getting at. But it's interesting just because like, I thought like, you know, Tim Burton did a pretty good job of balancing th- th- those kind of things. I mean, yes and no. He had a, he had Michelle Pfeiffer being licked by cats. So. Well, I mean that, that, you know, I mean, not, not, Hey, we, we, you don't need an, you don't need a scientific explanation for everything. We are, we, we, we are, correct. we are, we already we already established that like you know people people don't really like I mean you know how's that any different than a uh, Spider-Man getting bit by a spider and all of a sudden being like you know whatever um, all right uh, so uh what is your like actual like genuine official stance on uh Val Kilmer as Batman it's not bad i mean it's it's tough and like the way he puts it is quote it didn't make any difference what i was doing and that's why he quit he just hated wearing the bat suit so much that he ended up just and, and didn't get along with Schumacher so he was out but like it's it's a middling Bruce Wayne performance. He looks the part. He looks the part significantly more than the other three in this era. He looks the part more than Clooney. He looks the part more than Keaton. What does it mean to look the part as Bruce Wayne or wearing the suit? So it's, no, it's well, both. Okay. Like, I, I just happen to like this version of the bat suit, but like he as Bruce Wayne, like aesthetically looks like you would imagine Bruce Wayne to be in a way that doesn't come along again until like Bale shows up and blows everybody out of the water, right? Because like, you know, Keaton's kind of a smaller guy and like a little bit strange looking in 1989, right? George Clooney, a handsome guy, doesn't really scream Bruce Wayne. Kilmer aesthetically has it, but it's a little bit of a wooden performance, right? And I think, has, I, I, think he's objecti- to- I think he's objectively the worst actor out of everyone that is will have donned the, like, donned the suit, including Robert Pattinson. Kilmer's the worst actor. Objectively, but like, I mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't like cut the figure of a Bruce Wayne, but like, I, I just think right. based it's on the Kilmer things wooden. I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little wooden. It's... It doesn't quite work, but yeah, and I mean, I have no idea, like, but I have no idea, like, if it's actually going to work with Robert Pattinson or not. But I just like, I know him to like be a better actor than other Val Kilmer things I've seen. Not that I've seen a ton of Val Kilmer stuff, but like, I I, I felt the performance. Oh, Tombstone, I, yeah, I felt the performance was a little wooden, even compared to like other stuff I've seen him in that I liked. Whether it be, I mean, I actually don't think I've seen Tombstone, uh, but like I've oh, seen like, go. but I, I mean, I think he's actually really good in Heat, and sure. I think and 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 like I mean, does what he's asked to do fine in um top gun but like i but like he, here i was just kind of like uh he's not given a lot to work with like the right, reason right. i think i'm hesitant to be critical of his performance is because mm-hmm. like when i've mentioned this to you before these four films are not terribly interested in, in batman or bruce wayne as a protagonist yeah that and was that was pretty apparent in them. the first two yeah Yes, and, and it continues here with the amount of, of scenery chewing that Carrie does, and then you've still got a second villain in here. You've got a Chris O'Donnell subplot as Robin. Like, there's a lot going on in this film, and, and the, it's not 
the script, neither the script nor the director are principally concerned with the main character. Ooh. And that's just a trait of all four of these movies. Right. So yeah, that's a fair point. He's like, he is a, he can be a good actor and he's giving good stuff. I, I, I was, I wasn't even thinking about uh kiss, kiss, bang, bang when we were talking just now. And like, he's, that's he's legitimately, another. he's legitimately funny in that. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe he was not given as good a material as Keaton and either, but like, I don't know. It, did, it still struck me as like, not as interesting of a performance as like, you know, whatever, whatever Keaton was doing it, the, the delivery felt like fairly wooden at the same time. And, but, it, but again, I don't think it, he's helped by the fact that like, you know, he's given the dialogue he's given. And then they just like, put whatever the hell Nicole Kidman is doing in the same scene as him for like so much of this. And I have, I have no criticisms of what she's doing in this movie. Let me lodge that up. Front. I don't even necessarily say it's a criticism, but it's just like, <laughs> if, if, it feels like, I, I, I don't know. It's just like, they're telling him to do like one very straightforward thing. And they're just telling her to go, to go bonkers. And I think, I think she understood her assignment, but it was just so different from his assignment that like when you're, t- they're telling her to do stuff that's weird as shit. And they're telling him to just stand there and just like, you know, say like very short sentences or whatever. It's like, uh, I, Isn't I don't know. That what the whole is. film though. He's, he's just the straight man to every, Everyone else getting to do everything else that they want in the film. Sure. Mm -hmm. He's, he's just sort of like the stoic center that this chaos is revolving around, which is ultimately in a weird way with, with the, the not, you know, sorry, the dynamic for the character is as a whole in Batman in this, it's just like, Hey, you're going to stand there and be kind of wooden and everybody's going to act around you. Mm -hmm. And, And that's how it played out. So, how far did you need to get into the movie before you were jarred by the tonal shift? I, I know you, I know I braced you for it, but like, are we talking five minutes, 20 minutes, an hour in before you're like, holy shit, we really made a left turn here. You mean, you mean like the tonal shift from returns? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I get, I, I guess it was kind of like, I mean, I mean, it was as soon as, soon as Carrie showed up, not that uh, whatever uh, you not that Danny DeVito's performance in returns is, is like anything like kind of normal, but like, I, I think it's just, he gives off such a different vibe that like, I, I couldn't help, but like, be like, all right, this is like something very different is going on here. And, you know, I mean, like the look of it is also slightly different, but you know, I mean, very different. There's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's just a very different Gotham from what, like we, what, what Tim Burton did, I think. And, uh, not necessarily any better or worse, but it, I mean, I was able to, uh, as soon as we had a few uh, scenes that like gave different kinds of set design, like, I mean, I felt the difference in the Gotham Carrie gave off a very different vibe. Whereas like, yeah, what DeVito is doing is weird, but I think it fit within like a very different, darker version of Gotham. I, I, I and I don't even want to say I was off put by it. I think, I think, I, I just think more of my, my, my issues were with like the, were, were, we're with the overall storytelling, but I wasn't like, Oh, I'm not here for like this version of it. Like I like the goofy stuff. Like I, I, I feel like I probably said on the, the 89 pod, like I, I, I respected the fact that like this movie's like, we're going to like just pause for five minutes while Jack Nicholson does a funny dance. Like I, I, I like, <laughs> I like, I like the goofy stuff in that movie too. It's just like here, it just felt like, it just felt like Joel Schumacher. Like he had a very specific vision of what he wanted. And my, 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 my biggest takeaway after doing this was like, he, he's taken by certain things. And I felt that the, I, 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 I was a serious text. I sent you after the movie. I genuinely felt that the, the flying Grayson sequence was like a more, like he paid more attention and put more care into that action sequence than anything else. Like he sees like certain moments that he really like, felt the felt he wanted to be invested in visually and others that were just like incomprehensible as action scenes. And it's like, all right, like I got to just get on this guy's wavelength and hope I can just get there with him. And I, I, I guess I'll, accept, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and do that. And that was kind of like where, where I was at now. And, and it just, it just seemed like, you know, he was like, 
he, he had some like aesthetic things he wanted to accomplish here. And that was, and he came to do that and like, good for him, but like, maybe he didn't like, you know, and it's not, it's not Nipples all on him. That suit is one of the aesthetic things he wanted to accomplish for the rest. Yeah, he, and he, he very much accomplished that. I think you already commented that you really like the suit. So uh, to, to <laughs> each his own, I did not have a strong reaction to the nipples. I think I, I think I might've even like, I, I don't know if I like saw something in like the uh, one, one of the sections of the Wikipedia for the movie, or might, maybe it was on the, uh, the X-ray feature of Amazon. Cause I watched this on Amazon. Uh, I know the nipples were like very controversial and it's like, uh, fine, man. Like you do you, it didn't take me out of the movie at all. And I don't want to criticize him too much. Cause I know he didn't write the movie either necessarily. Uh, but like, I, I don't know. Uh, to, to, but yeah, to give, to give, to give a, a long answer to your uh, smartly pointed question, I was like, I very clearly felt like I was in a different world at first, but I, I wasn't like, uh, I, I didn't have any kind of like negative uh, uh, reaction to the, to the aesthetic. It was just like, all right, like I, I'm just not really feeling these villains. And like, like I've already said, like I had my reasons for like what they could have done differently in that regard. I, this is actually my favorite aesthetic of any of the bad films that have come out and like whatever Matt Reeves is going to do, because it looks like he's just completely ripped off David Fincher. We'll find out. Yeah. I'm I, really have, I, have, I, I, I know. I know. After, well, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Cause like after you, like after that first trailer came out, you're like, Oh, he's doing seven. And I'm yeah. like, all right, well, so you like, I, I know you like that and you're kind of excited about that, but like you actually kind of still even prefer like this, like this world right here from a visual standpoint. The thing I love about Batman as a character is how malleable he is and how ma- malleable the Rose gallery is. Okay. Mm. So like, I love everything from Batman 66 to what Reeves is going to do, which is going to be pretty heavy and probably like borderline scary. The fact that all of it works is a testament to like how much you can do with this and still have it succeed. So you can really go from one end of the spectrum to the other. The reason I really like this version of Gotham, and it's exactly what I started out with in just how completely impractical everything is. And you'll see more of this in Batman and Robin this version of Gotham, everything looks like it's about 400 feet in the air. Mm. There's just flying statues for no reason. There's, there's like highways that are 25 stories up. All of it is completely impossible and all of it is in neon. And for whatever reason, like it's just so impossible that it's fun. Like, like it captures your imagination. Um, one of the set designers actually referred to it as Saturday Night Fever on Acid. And like it does look like an LSD fever dream Gotham. Um, like, Where did they, know, did they film it on sound stages? Yes, they actually okay. um, were like in Howard Hughes's like old private hangar because the sets were so large that they couldn't even build them in a back lot. They literally had nowhere to put this stuff because they had to build everything so big. Because this is you know when they're making it, it's 1994, right? So like CGI is not quite a thing yet. So they are building these ridiculous sets to try to capture all this stuff in camera. And when you look at some of the behind the scenes of it, you know, like take Riddler's lair at the end is just one example. None of that that's fake. They had to build the whole thing. Mm. And it was just really great to look at. Like, you know, in a way where you like, look at old like star Wars puppets, like makes you yearn for a time where it was not just like two superheroes standing in front of a green screen. 
Yeah, there are a few moments in here where like I I don't know what makes a set design good. Like I mean, I could have like I I, I think I, I liked Returns better than this movie. Uh, but like I could very much tell that Returns was like not actually shot shot in a real city. Uh, like and right. I think there were a few moments here where I actually was like, oh, like uh, it seems like it might have actually shot on some kind of location. Uh, though again, that doesn't inherently make it better. But like for all my criticisms, I thought like I, there were a few moments where I was like, oh, they might have actually shot this in a real place. Uh, but I I, I don't necessarily know if I gave a lot of thought to like do i strongly prefer something like that where it's like yeah they use the soundstage they they doubled like city blocks for actual city blocks okay compared to like something like uh joker which we're like we're both on the record as like not particularly liking that movie but like you know that joker like shot in new york and it's like does that sure. i don't i don't know that like it, it's just very clear if you watch joker like they're shooting in like new york it's just you can tell in uh i, I, I don't even know if that took me out of joker there was so much other crap in joker that I, I i didn't really pay that much mind to it as i was watching it but it's interesting to like think of like all these very distinct eras and i honestly don't even know off the top of my head where like the nolan movies filmed uh so so uh i'll quickly all of begins is actually in a hangar somewhere in england interesting and they, built, they built that whole narrow set in a hangar and it's very elaborate but it's on a soundstage um dark knight was in chicago and in london you can actually see some signs but it's principally chicago um, I think then, I think seven is seven Chicago. Uh, hold on, I forget uh, where they shot seven. I, uh, the, the, like, the, the, I don't think there's any actual setting, but I don't know where they shot it. No, but they, I, and, I, and we know they shot uh, the Batman in London, so it, it's just interesting because like it seems like that's, that that the Batman is probably still it's going to be closer to whatever the 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 Nolan movies were, but like you can just tell from the the right the they're actually that, on set at that point, or they're they're actually yeah. I mean, but I, I don't know. It, it doesn't necessarily make any one thing like better or worse. Like when it's when a movie is actually like supposed to be set in a city and then they they say it's shot in uh they say it's in new york but you do you can just tell like that's definitely not new york that's atlanta or something like and that bothers <laughs> toronto me. right yeah. right toronto vancouver whatever like that that bothers me more than like you know uh doing a soundstage if you like utilize the soundstage right and i think this movie like the, the look of it is was like the least of my problems so I, i'll i'll certainly give it that yeah, what else? Uh, we touched on the uh, the the Nicole Kidman of it all. I know you said you had no complaints about what she was doing. Uh, I know, I know, I know. You might have uh, also been a little facetious when you said that. And I I do not have like the the highest like uh, expectations for these movies with how they with how they write their women. Uh, but like what I will say about that, and that was the main thought I had when I wrote it down after this was that. Uh, I actually think there's a lot of potential to like have a storyline where like Batman goes to therapy. You know, like I think you can, which like, is what they tried to do here a little bit. Yeah, right. I think you can mine a lot of interesting material out of that. Like, Bat I mean, we know from all the Batman movies we've watched, like uh, Batman has a lot of issues. Uh, and uh, so I think the idea of like having him, like you know him sit down with like anyone that like actually really genuinely wants to get inside uh, either Batman or Bruce Wayne's head, uh, there's a lot that could potentially be done with that. But at the same time, I think I had trouble like taking the idea of that seriously when uh, just about every other scene where she shows up in, she's just like throwing herself at Batman and basically like sounds like she's about to just like uh, jump out of her clothes every time he like moves an inch. And I'm like, OK, like this is how you're going to write this character. Uh, but then you're going to expect me to like take your seriously as like a deep psychological thinker after that. Not 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 to say that a woman can't like, you know, be sexually attracted and be sex positive and uh, not be a professional woman. But it was just like uh, I it, it didn't seem like they like I don't I don't know if they towed that line right with that character and how over the top they wrote her in those scenes, you know? Well, this goes back a little bit to what I said earlier about how 
had you taken that bent with this movie and tried to make it like more of a psychological explanation exploration of what's wrong with this guy, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have fit with everything else in the film, right, right? right? But like they did film those scenes, which is weird. You can go watch them. Like, oh, there's really? a scene there's like extended of, versions of those scenes where she's talking to him about like why he's, why he does what he does. So Kidman's character is not present, but like it's her presence in the film that is causing him to rethink everything he's doing. So like mm. he thinks about retiring, and has a long right, speech right. in the cave, like why the hell am I doing this anymore? And then he actually goes through a bout of amnesia after after the cave explodes and he gets shot in the head where he has to like rediscover why he's Batman. Oh, and right. Like, it, well, in the version are, in, in the version I saw on Amazon, too, like he straight up does like kind of retire when Robin's trying to get him to work with him. Uh, yeah. But it's like it doesn't it feels a little out of nowhere. Like it feels like I missed a scene or two. Right. There's there's it's a more protracted storyline, mm-hmm. but it's completely out of step with just the bombastic nature of the film. And like this is a quote from Schumacher himself, which will tell you how they landed on where they landed. Mm. Quote, there are no deep, dark choices. I'm just trying to make the movie as entertaining as I can. And that is absolutely his, his philosophy in this and significantly more so to his detriment in Batman and Robin. Fair so enough. You did have kind of two different versions of this film, one of which would have been longer and probably would have been about two hours and 30 minutes, but would have been more fleshed out and probably a little more serious. And we settled on uh, a flat two hours of Jim Carrey literally chewing scenery. Uh, speaking, speaking, I mean, I'm a fan of. So. I'm, and I'm not not as much. But speaking of uh, Dr. Chase Meridian, uh, one of the things that I learned from the Amazon X-ray features was that uh, I guess it was when it was still when they thought it might still be Keaton, they had cast Renee Russo in the part, and then like. Uh, okay. And, and and then when it was like, all right, this isn't going to be Keaton anymore. It's Val Kilmer. They told Renee Russo she was too old and kicked her to the curb, uh, oh, which is God. like a, a, like a, a very like unsurprising thing when you like kind of think about how Hollywood works. And they're like, well, no, she's too old to be the love interest when she is actually only like five years older than Val Kilmer. And Val Kilmer is uh, like eight years older than Nicole Kidman. Speaking of other casting choices, though, yeah. um, Robin Williams was originally meant to play the Riddler and it just didn't happen. And the first pass of the script was written uh, with Robin Williams in mind. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And then Jim Carrey blows up in 1994. And here we all are. I mean, like I, so who knows how much they rewrote it to Jim Carrey to like, so he could do his Jim Carrey things though. Like, I feel like I could see Robin Williams definitely pulling off a version of the Riddler. I would have liked, I'll say that, you know, so I think there were two passes at the script. The original script um, was written for for Robin Williams, and then Akiva Goldsman, who's who goes on to write Batman and Robin, but then I think also goes on to win the Academy Award for A Beautiful Mind. You're gonna have fun with that one, trying to figure out how the guy who the same guy wrote both of those. <laughs> um, so there were a couple different passes at the script, but um, the general consensus is that at least that role did not change significantly. It was just like those were two people who would have been capable of pulling off roughly the same part. And that's why it worked. Or at least that's why it, that's why they landed on Jim. Um, All right. But actually while we're, while we're doing that, we should probably address why Keaton bailed in the first place. And this is a little bit related to the, the Schumacher quote I just threw at you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Burton departs. Keaton is still sort of tentatively attached and he has a meeting with Schumacher and he literally, I think, just had gave this interview and was talking about this within the last year. Um, and so he was talking about sort of not only did he prefer the, the sort of 
darker left-footed version of, of Batman and Bruce Wayne that Burton was doing. But then he's presented with what Schumacher ultimately wants to do with these two movies or, you know, what could have been three or four had, had Batman and Robin gone differently. But Keaton goes, I remember walking away from the meeting and thinking, oh boy, I can't do this. Hmm. Schumacher had asked him, I don't understand why everything has to be so dark and everything so sad. And, and why I, there are no, and why there are no nipples. Right. And <laughs> I, this being Keaton goes, wait a minute. Do you know how this guy got to be Batman? Have you read? Uh, I mean, never mind. It's pretty simple. <laughs> so that is everything in a nutshell about how we got from Batman Returns to Batman Forever. And even more acutely, how we're going to go from Batman Forever, which straddles line between being, you know, it's certainly an over the top film. OK, but like it's not egregiously bad. Um, there's a lot to like about it. And there's some ideas in it where like, had they simply invested more time in one area and less time in another, this could be a pretty good movie. We're really going to go off the rails coming up and you well, can yeah. see how we're going to get there. Well, so, I, I mean, I guess leading into that and I'll circle back after, after this and uh, tie up any other odds and ends we didn't already talk about. The one thing we didn't really talk about yet was, uh, was uh, Dick Grayson, uh, Chris O'Donnell's Robin. Karate I understand. laundry. Karate laundry, Josh. I, I, and I, I mean, I know what I know. I, so as of the recording of this, I still have not watched Batman and Robin. I know what the reception to that movie is. And I'm very curious to actually see how it strikes me. But uh, just uh, if you can isolate this film, uh, what did you think of the way they tried to introduce him? Filming Robin is tricky, right? Because, I mean, in a comic book, this is probably supposed to be like a 12 to 14 year old kid. And there's no way to do that seriously. Okay. Yeah, you, well, you, 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 you would get the Robin from the Harley Quinn animated series. Right. And, and there's just no way to, to present that on film in a way that's satisfying or doesn't like reek of child endangerment, even if you want to suspend your disbelief, right? I feel like it would so, be a, kind of of a piece of the whole Joel Schumacher thing to do something that weird, but I get why you would not even want to go there in a live action movie. So let's do some, Chris, uh, some quick Googling here. How old was Chris O'Donnell in 1995? Uh, so he's, he's already in his 20s at this point. And like this feels necessary. So even though like Robin is already like a full-fledged adult who can legally buy alcohol, like that probably needs to be the way you're going to go if you're going to introduce this character in live action. I well, the, Wiki the, the, the Wikipedia, which I already uh, discussed with you before we got on the air, is objectively wrong about a very big moment in this movie. It calls sure. him 17, but I don't actually remember them like saying he was 17 in the movie. Uh, I think it's a throwaway line. Oh, uh, okay. okay. But, okay. but sure. But, but the yeah, Chris O'Donnell looks older than that, but he, like, he right. looks early 20s, and like it's, right. which is fine, I guess. You know, look, He's inoffensive is the way I would put it. It's not a strong performance. He's also not really holding the film back in any way. The karate laundry is ridiculous, but um, it works well enough. Again, Chris O'Donnell is not the reason that, that Batman and Robin goes off the road. Wait, so when there. you say karate launch, that's the moment where he tries, where he like gets into the bat lair? Well, no, that's, that's where he is literally like wringing out his wet laundry over his back and doing like wild kicks and flips and then like hanging up his oh, 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 oh right right <laughs> that thing. okay sorry yeah uh, yeah it's, it it's the most dramatic like it's uh i don't know it was like crossfit laundry i don't even know how to describe it. it's crazy do you where do you stand on the scene where like uh the motorcycle uh garage scene go ahead like when he offers him the cheeseburger 
Well, yeah, that, that, <laughs> and just like him being like, I'm getting out of here. And he's like, you know, someone could fix this thing up. They could uh, earn themselves a motorcycle with credit. And then he walks out and then, uh, yeah, Alfred's like, oh, shame. This cheeseburger is going in the trash. Yeah. And perhaps the like, hounds are hungry. <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, no pun intended. It's, it, it's like a fairly cheesy scene, but I think it actually worked on me to some extent. Like, I mean, it felt like one of the more human moments of the movie with like whatever effect that might be having on him, even if I agree with you, where it's like, it's not a great performance and it's like a fairly uh, on the nose and silly sequence, though, at the same time, like, I guess I, I, I won't say I wasn't moved at all based on what I already knew about his family and the way that like Bruce was trying to take him in though. I don't know if it was Robert Ebert review or another one I read, like they tried to like, you know, get at the fact that that movie might, or that, uh, that that sequence might've had some homoerotic overtones and I'm not going to push back against that. But the whole movie has homoerotic overtones. Well, well yeah, sure. It's a, it, right, right. Now, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, sure. It's a Joel Schumacher thing. But like the one of the reviews I read, like specifically focused in on that scene. But I'm just saying, okay. like, look, I mean, like, you no, see where I, you, I didn't pick it up there. No, but like, what well, you see, <laughs> you see, you see where he loses the family, and I guess. Again, like I said, the flying Grayson scene I thought was like the best executed action sequence in the entire movie. Um, I think which, so. which I mean, again, it's like I thought it was again. I thought it was done very well, though I was kind of disappointed that like it felt like all the other action was for the most part incomprehensible. Uh, but like I think because of that, and because like, I mean, it felt like they actually like put a lot of thought, and there was a lot of like uh, pathos in that moment. I felt more invested in Dick like the the rest of the movie. Related to the like, let's let's focus on the circus team for a second. Mm-hmm. This this iteration of Batman just seems obsessed with letting the whole world know that he's Batman. Okay, Mm. so you have Michael Keaton tell two different women in 89 and Returns that he's Batman. Val Kilmer, like 40 minutes into this film, in the middle of a crowded circus where apparently no one can hear him, just stands up and yells, I'm Batman. Okay. (laughs) Let's gloss over that. And then by the end of the film, uh, yet again, a, a third love interest has been informed that he is indeed Batman. Literally everyone knows this guy is Batman. Have you ever seen the, have you, have you seen the uh, SNL celebrity Jeopardy where they have like Val Kilmer saying like, doesn't say anything for an answer other than I'm Batman. And not, like, no, not that one, but I have okay. seen all the turd Ferguson's. Yeah. 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 That, that's like a thing. in like where they have Val Kilmer and like he, the only answer he basically gives or he ends every answer by saying I'm Batman. And that was the moment that made, in the movie that made me realize, Oh, like that's what they were actually making fun of in the SNL sketch. Cause I had not seen this movie uh, 72 hours ago, but yeah. Um, He's both uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman. Not no, because I, the, it has to be, but because he chooses to be Josh. I, I legitimately laughed out loud though at the I'm Batman moment where it's like, it, 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 I, I don't know. Like I, Ten thousand people just screaming. No one hears. But, but he no doesn't say it. He doesn't say it that loud. Like it's so evident from the way they like shoot that scene that like he's definitely not saying it loud enough at all that anyone would actually like hear him. But like he genuinely like is actually like willing to like give himself up in that moment. But it's just like the in the most ineffective way possible. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, like I um. I don't know. I, 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 and it's, I feel weird like talking about the whole uh, the Robin stuff too much right now when I still have not watched Batman and Robin and we'll be talking more about that shortly. But like, I don't know. I, I would just say that like, uh, like- oh, Donald's not the problem with any of it. I mean, like, it's fine. He's not given great dialogue like uh, none, none of it's great, but, but uh, it's 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 a tough act to pull off and put it this way. Again, another character where like the film is significantly less interested in him than it is in what Jim Carrey is doing. Jim Carrey is literally given all the material and then runs away with even more of it. And everybody else is just scrambling for like resonance in this film. Well, I guess 
I, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about Kerry, but first, like, I, I mean, I, I guess with res- with respect to O'Donnell, my, my other two questions are, did any of the, uh, the people not getting along stuff, did that go beyond anything beyond Kerry and uh, Tommy Lee Jones not getting along and Kilmer and uh, Joel Schumacher, Schumacher not Schumacher getting along? Were the other two. I, I didn't know if there were any other examples of that uh, with respect not to- Not that uh, I came across. Okay. I, I was curious about that, but also, uh, I mean- I mean, I, I guess, uh, we, um, I, I don't know. I, 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 I actually don't know if I had another question that I was just curious how, um, O'Donnell fit into all that, if at all, but also I guess on Carrie, I mean, I, I kind of already, I kind of said my piece on that, but what the, it, it, I know you probably like, like some of the individual moments he gets in this movie. Yes. Uh, w- were there any other like sequences of where he actually is, you know, going what, some people might just perceive as full Jim Carrey that really work for you in the context of this movie. Cause I feel like, yeah, there might've been a few lines here and there that got chuckles from me, but like nothing that like stuck with me enough to like necessarily like uh, remember or write down. Jim Carrey is a fantastic actor. Um, mm. I feel like sometimes yeah, I would not dispute that. Like if you watch him in Truman show, eternal sunshine, the spotless mind, like I can just start man, rep- man on the man on the moon cable man guy. Yeah. I love Cable Guy. Cable Guy is like legitimately like a very, very interesting performance from him. But like he is a good, serious actor when he wants to be and when he chooses to be and when he accepts those roles. There are really small fleeting moments in this film where this guy could have been the creepiest son of a bitch alive. (laughs) Right. And like most of the time he spends doing Frank Gorshin on steroids and like seemingly trying to like outact Jack Nicholson from like six years prior. <laughs> when he's blowing up the Batcave, we're on full scenery chewing mode. When he's in like the white jumpsuit at the end, it's all too much and we're off the rails. But if you go back to the early stage of this film before he fully becomes the Riddler, when he kills his boss at Wayne Enterprises and he gets that demented look in his face right before he pushes him out the window. That's creepy and it's really good and it's really effective. And then obviously pushes him down the hallway, throws him out the window. I give you your surf's up big kahuna when we started the film. But like that is the right mix of this guy being completely friggin' out of his mind, but also like a little bit scary in a way. Mm. And like that would have worked really well. There's a stalker angle that like kind of starts at the beginning of the film with him and Bruce Wayne. That would have been really interesting. I even really love when they go to the party hosted by Nigma in the middle of the film where he comes out and he's cut his hair exactly like Val Kilmer's hair, just to continue the stalker angle. I think Jim Carrey actually looks legitimately handsome in that moment. I'll say that. Right. It's a great head of hair. But like there were there were parts of this performance and there were parts of the way the character was written where this thing could have been really great and really special. And like it ends up being special in its own way for all the wrong reasons that like we've summed up now and the part is remembered for but there are these glimpses it's something that could have been very different where you're like wow that could have been really great and like he's a talented enough actor where that could have been creepy as hell and yeah yeah i get there but it's in there no yeah i i think it's a very good point worth making have you ever seen that sonic movie i mentioned earlier i have not watched sonic the hedgehog and i believe sonic 2 is coming 
Yeah, no, you know, it is. I, I, I don't know if he's going to be in it or not, but like, I, I would be very, very curious to see like what you thought if you went and watched that, because I mean, maybe it was just because like Jim Carrey had not been in anything mainstream for that in a pretty long time at the time I saw it. So I didn't really have any expectations for what it would be. And maybe I was skeptical, but like, I, I just think it's like a, it's a really good villain performance actually. And so I just kind of know he has that in him and, you know, I don't know how much of this was like them letting him do his own thing versus like them wanting to do his thing because he was an incredibly massive movie star at the time he was in this movie. And why not let Jim Carrey be Jim Carrey? It's going to appeal to all the, the six year old Nick Mentes of the world. But I, I, I just, you know, for me watching it as a 31 year old, I'm just like, all right, I'm getting a little tired of this. And, you know, I mean, who knows, like maybe there's a, a different version of this that strikes that balance better where he can do some goofy stuff that the little kids will enjoy, but like keeps it a little more uh, reined in. Um, but my theory of this film <clears throat> is that there's got to be 10,000 different takes of every scene based mm -hmm. on the amount of improvisation that Jim Carrey does as a character in a role like this. Mm -hmm. I bet you could have cut together any version of this film you wanted based on the 47 different ways he did <laughs> each individual scene. Sure. Um, these are the ones they picked, mm. but um, you know, the stories from the set are basically like, if for whatever reason, a scene wasn't working, they'd just be like, Jim just make something up and he would do it. Mm. And in there, maybe they went with it. Maybe they didn't. So I think, I think there's all sorts of different versions of this movie in a can somewhere. Uh Hmm. Uh, is there anything we didn't touch on yet? I mean, I, I, any insights that you have that you think it would inform our conversation from uh, some of the research you did behind the scenes or any other parts of this movie we didn't touch on yet that you want to touch on before we wrap up? Well, Kilmer's out. This is, this is one and done. Um, well, so is there anything more to that to, to share other than the fact you just like didn't really like working with Schumacher? Evidently, they got into a shoving match one day on the set and then uh, Jesus. Uh, uh, Kilmer did not talk to Schumacher for two weeks, which Schumacher described as pure bliss. So, so <laughs> they, they did not like each other. And like, uh, you know, Val has apparently uh, been notoriously hard to work with in Hollywood at different points in his career. And I think he actually addresses that in that, that documentary he did recently that was so mm -hmm. well received. But this, this is a one and done and we're about to get another one and done in, in George Clooney. And so it's weird because you reset, you do the soft reboot and you change the aesthetic and you, you cast Val Kilmer uh, and now you'll keep that sensibility and that aesthetic and all the other characters around him, but you're going to replace him with George Clooney. That's where we're headed. Yeah, there is a, uh, I have not seen that Val Kilmer documentary either, but uh, you know, there is a uh, story on, I, I read a long story about him on New York times magazine about uh, you know, he had a, uh, he, he had like a cancer, like I think of the throat and that yes. like ended up kind of ro mostly robbing him of his voice. Like, Correct. largely and like it's it's really actually interesting if you want to go kind of like read about him and uh but then like also like i said before like go watch heat go watch tombstone according to nick go watch kiss kiss bang bang it's a great shane black film like he, he has some really plays fun jim films. morrison in the doors right so like he's done a lot of stuff and it, it's that that would inform if you like actually uh read that story on him so uh but just very interesting that like they went through all these like different cycles of I mean, it's, it's really just pretty interesting when you think about it, just like the character like in a vacuum and the different people that have like tried to play him and how um like i, I mean i guess it's just it bails the only one that like did it more than twice right in live action movies so i guess unless you count no that is right i mean uh affleck had some some cameos well actually yeah i take that back because right. i mean I, I didn't realize until recently and we've talked offline a little bit about the just i i think we have a little bit about the the flash movie and how uh in in some way keaton is going to be back for that but apparently affleck's in that movie too 
Uh, and Briefly, it's like, yeah, I, I don't apparently. know. I don't know. I don't know what to an extent he's in it, apparently, in some way. So that will be, I guess, his third time playing Batman in a live action role because he did it in Batman versus more Superman. than that. He did it in Suicide Squad briefly as well. Oh, OK. So I guess in that that's very sure. strange. It's very strange that he'll have more live action appearances than anyone, but he will not have yeah. his own Batman movie. Uh, we'll never know what would have come of the uh, uh, Ben Affleck scripted version, which was a thing that eventually turned into the Matt Reeves movie. Uh, just very strange, but it's it's just odd that like you know this people like for whatever for a lot of people for whatever reason just like didn't like stick with this character other than Bale who did it with, with the same director who right. directed more of these movies than anyone. The uh, one it, thing I do before we get out of here because I yeah. want to set up where we're going mm-hmm. with Batman and Robin. So Returns obviously has a cult following, but it's it's really rejected by the studio by the studio's partners like McDonald's. Um, like even, I, I think there were like parents groups that were upset about it, right? So we get this hard pivot to Batman Forever. And this movie does really well. Like, is it critically panned? Yeah, kind of. It's got a 38% on Rotten Tomatoes, but like it gets some good reviews at the time. More importantly, it does incredibly well at the box office. This actually set at the time um, the largest opening weekend record. Okay. So Batman's very much back in 1995. And like, think of the scale of this film. We talked about this a little bit in Batman 89, where you have Jack Nicholson, a Batman movie, you have a soundtrack with Prince. Okay. Now fast forward to 95, Jim Carrey is basically the biggest movie star in the world. Okay. Kiss from a Rose by seal takes off. I mean, like there's a lot going on around this movie. Like this is an event. It makes a bunch of money. All of a sudden, Batman is very much back. Like, not that there was really a question. Batman's like a very hot commercial property. In two years, this thing is going to be burned to the ground so badly that it cannot continue. And it's just jarring to think about. Like, you go from the largest opening weekend ever and one of the most financially successful films of all time directly into a film that is so bad that you do not get a Batman film for eight years. And you end up going from Joel Schumacher being completely over the top and nonsensical and bombastic and like uh, in uh, Gotham on LSD to what you get in Christopher Nolan, which is the most practical, explained, at the time, realistic Batman that anyone had ever thought of. And and so we're going to go from X to Y to Z very quickly. Well, well, so it's interesting. I know you said it got a few positive reviews at the time. I'm trying to put it in the proper context since we just talked about it for, you know, almost an hour. But like, and I don't I don't really necessarily trust the audience rating on Rotten Tomatoes for something like this that, you know, didn't come out at a time where Rotten Tomatoes was actually around. Do right. you know, like, did people like appreciate this? Like, uh, Cinema Score now says A minus. Oh, really? Cinema okay. Score was not around. I don't know yeah. if Cinema Score was around back then. Um, Peter Travers for Rolling Stone. Batman Forever gets in its licks. There's no fun machine this summer that packs more surprises. Like this was this was basically, even if it's not high cinema, it was lauded at the time for being a rejection of Batman Returns, and that was good enough. And that was obviously commercially successful. And like you're not going to make all that money unless you're getting people to go multiple times, or you're getting a lot of people who are interested to go. I mean, sure. this this greatly outdraw the film that came before it. So uh, this was once again a hot property with a bright future, and they go 
right into producing Batman and Robin immediately because there's a two-year turnaround between these films. You go from 95 to 97. It's really hard to make a blockbuster film that quickly. So like, we're printing money. Let's go. And then everything goes wrong. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, uh, the, way, the ways in which they lean in in the wrong ways in Batman and Robin. Uh, Nick, any other uh, parts, any other uh, odds and ends or fun facts or other parts of Batman Forever that we did not already uh, mention that you want to do shout out before we wrapped up? Yes, please go watch the music video from Seal. It's the greatest music video of all time. Wait, wait so the Kiss from a Rose music video is tied into this? I don't know if I've Joel ever Schumacher watched it. directed it. I did Joel not Schumacher know that. directed the Kiss from a Rose video. And um, I guess if you, if I believe it's on Instagram and, and Schumacher died just within the last few years. Mm-hmm. And when he did, Seal put out um, a video tribute on his Instagram page where he was like, I want to thank Joel Schumacher because he's really responsible for the success of my career. Like everyone's aware of Seal now. The song, you know, took oh, on okay. a life of its own and he had some other hits, but he's basically like, Hey, yeah, I did two, three albums. Like my career wasn't going anywhere. Kiss from a Rose was not the title track off that album that I wrote. And I guess Joel heard the song and loved it. Contacted Seal, changed his career, changed his life and said, Hey, you know what? Not only do I want to use the song, uh, I'm going to direct the music video and I'm just going to use all the footage from the film. And now Seal is Seal. And so it's actually... It's a good maybe four or five minute uh, tribute from Seal to Schumacher on his Instagram page that gives, I, I just told the short version of the story, obviously, but he goes into more detail and it's, uh, it's just another cool note of something that came out of this. Yeah, I do not know that movie all that well, uh, or sorry, I do not know music in general all that well, but I know Kiss from a Rose and I did not know that that was what the music video entailed. I will watch that as soon as uh, we're done with this call. But yeah, I think we pretty well covered it. I think we, uh, I mean, look, uh, I, I obviously had some pretty complicated feelings. I saw some uh, opportunities for this to be like something much better than it was, though. I think there are like uh, small individual things you can take from this. Uh, sounds like, uh, I, I think, I think, I think Nick probably takes a few more positives from this than I do, but you know, look, it's, uh, th- these movies all have their, they all have their individual charms, I suppose. And, uh, maybe even Batman and Robin does. Cause as the way, uh, Nick had previously described it to me, I guess it's just like, you know, so bad that you can't help but like take them fun things from it. So, um, once you've watched any movie upwards of 25 to 30 times, you you'll find things you, that, that you enjoy there you go yeah that's why i just have to sit through it 25 times that's all right that's why i just thought this was like such a fascinating uh project to do with nick because like i think like most sane moviegoers like you can like or or just like most moviegoers can like objectively say like all oh, the nolan films are good but like these are just like these are these contain multitudes in their own way um, that's, um that's well put yeah. All right. Well, uh, Nick, uh, thank you for joining because of the time sensitive nature of this. Uh, actually this is coming out pretty soon uh, to when we were recording it, but like you're going to be recording another one of these in a week, but is there any, are there any other recommendations you want to make as we normally do on the podcast, uh, for like things people could be watching now that you've been enjoying? You've, you, you, you've had other life events going on recently. So I don't know if you've had a lot of time to be watching TV or other movies, but is there anything else you want to shout out content wise? You think people should be looking at at the moment? No. I haven't watched anything recently. <laughs> I watch the same stuff over and over again. Uh, go watch Spotlight. Great film. I may as well ask you on the pod now. I, I feel like I probably promoted it at some point. Yeah, I did like two episodes ago. But are, are you watching Peacemaker? I haven't gotten to it yet. Ooh, um, okay. And I, I really would like to um, because I, I so enjoyed John Cena's performance in, in Suicide Squad. And you, can, you guys can go back and 
listen to the uh, the Suicide Squad that uh, pod that Josh and I did. Um, yeah, I no. enjoyed that. I just haven't gotten to it yet. No, and I think my take after like I don't know at the time we recorded that if I I think we might have mentioned on that pod how they had made the announcement of the series. Uh, mm-hmm. but like my take afterward was like, I don't know if I need a whole series of this dude, even if I actually really love John Cena as a comedic actor. Uh, and like, I think they, they really proved me wrong. So I don't have a lot else to recommend myself because I've had a very busy couple weeks at work and the last like three weekends I've had, I, I've been, a, a have been in a wedding and then I had my birthday weekend where I like, I like was going nonstop to different parties for that. Cause I had two other friends that had birthdays on either side of my birthday. And then I had, uh, and then I was like traveling for work slash Nick's wedding. So I have there not like go. actually like watched as much other stuff or even like, uh, been to the movie theater for anything besides, Oh, you know, I did see parallel mothers. Uh, very good. Okay. Penelope Cruz is probably going to get nominated for an Oscar. Uh, Pedro Almodovar is very good. Uh, film. Uh, I am going to watch nightmare alley this weekend. That's that yeah. I want to do which uh, people can go back and listen to the podcast. I did that with our friend Ben back in October, uh, December, which is like now like very widely available. You can, I think you can watch on both Hulu and HBO max actually. I believe that's correct. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to that and I'm gearing up for season three of Atlanta, but. And for anyone that happened to listen for, to this, uh, but like didn't watch, go back and watch the movie before listening to this, uh, Nick and I had a lot of conversations offline about where you can watch these movies now. Uh, you can now do it on Hulu. Uh, it doesn't particularly make a lot of sense that like you can do it there, but not on HBO Max, given that like Turner straight up owns these properties. But like that is where you can do it. So if like you listen to this for some reason and had not rewatched the movie, but are inspired to do so, uh, go do so on Hulu and don't pay for it for pay $4 to do so on Amazon and like i did because i just you know made jeff bezos a couple cents richer so uh, nick any uh, anything else you want to personally plug your social media or anything like that uh yeah you'll find me on twitter at nick underscore menta uh i will complain about florida politics and uh occasionally write about golf video games so there you go Unfortunately, uh, plenty uh, for Nick to do about the former. As usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, I don't know. Maybe one of these days, if Nick starts watching a bunch of movies, I'll make him get on Letterboxd because that, that seems like a, uh, a social media platform he can get into. Uh, and the Twitter, uh, the podcast Twitter is uh, at Rewind Movie Pod, and the podcast email is the Real Movie Pod at gmail.com. So send any feedback that way. Uh, it's it's a very strange time in the movie calendar because like there's I've seen most of the actual like movie releases. I want to see for 2021. Uh, but like, I think at the time people listen to this, we will probably soon have a podcast coming out on death on the Nile with our friend, Fred, who I've also uh, made promise to talk about uh, Belfast with me. Cause again, I think that is the, like the one uh, possible best picture nomination for the Oscars that I have not recorded a podcast episode yet on, unless there's like a surprise best picture nomination. So uh, you can stay tuned for those and maybe a couple of the other foreign movies that uh, are coming to theaters, like the worst person in the world or drive my car. But again, we'll have to just like see when uh, the, the uh, common folk that aren't in LA, New York, like myself, uh, get those movies. So uh, everyone stay tuned for that. Thanks again to Nick for joining me and uh, Oh yeah. And regardless next week, we'll be talking about Batman and Robin with uh, Nick and our friend uh daniel so thanks to everyone for joining thanks to uh nick for uh continuing his uh work in this project with me and we'll see you next time